Inside the control room, Anatoly Dyatlov, Alexander Akimov, and Leonid Toptunov knew that a major catastrophe had just occurred. Although they did not yet know the exact specifics of what had happened, they could make guesses. For one, it definitely wasn't a nuclear blast because the facility would have been obliterated along with them. What they were sure of, though, was that there was a very high chance radioactivity was leaking into the environment and the atmosphere as a result of the accident. Anatoly had worked in the field of nuclear energy for over 20 years and had even assisted in the construction of Reactor 4. For that reason, even after two explosions, he wasn't particularly worried. He quickly ordered Alexander and Leonid to call firefighters and remain at the control panel just in case something came up that needed to be dealt with quickly. After he gave his orders, Anatoly ran towards the reactor area. What he saw was the same eerie glow as if from a volcano that Sasha Yubchenko had seen earlier. Torn electrical wires hung down from the walls. Water from burst pipes poured onto the cables, sending sparks into thick, highly radioactive smoke that covered the area like some sort of sentient mist. Anatoly stood there for a couple of minutes, staring down in shock, his brain not comprehending what happened to the core. The only thing going through his head was one sentence. The scientists had said that this sort of accident wasn't possible. As he stared, Anatoly heard the distant sounds of an approaching siren. He suddenly realized that the firefighters were arriving and needed someone to direct them to the nearest fire hydrants. As he walked across the grounds of the power plant, he noticed smoking lamps of what appeared to be graphite. Just like that, his brain made the connection and he suddenly realized exactly what happened to the core. He was staring at pieces of it. The glow coming from where it had been was a core fire. If the fire was not contained, the uranium fuel assembly was in danger of total meltdown, which could only turn a terrible situation into an even worse one. As he was thinking, Lieutenant Leonid Pravik and a firefighting unit from Pripyat had arrived and were now positioned on what was left of the roof of Reactor Building 4. Instead of aiming their horses at the fire, Pravik and his team were aiming at the roof of Reactor Building 3, where chunks of graphite from the reactor core had landed and were in the process of starting several fires. Several times, Pravik and his team had to stop due to the intensity of the flames. They had fought a lot of fires, but they had never faced fires with such intense heat before. The flames were hot enough to melt steel. They were hot enough to burn directly through concrete. And because of these two factors, the roof they were standing on began to melt under their feet. At this point, let's address one of the Soviet government's biggest failures. Even though the Chernobyl plant was a nuclear plant, which meant that the possibility of a radioactive accident was always quite high, there had been no preparations at the plant or in the neighboring community for such an eventuality. 
In the minds of Soviet officials and scientists, preparing for such an event would have been like admitting that one was indeed going to occur. For example, as Pravik and his team were fighting the fire, none of them was wearing protective clothing of any sort, not even a radiation-proof gas mask. By 3 a.m. local time, most of these firefighters had already absorbed a lethal amount of radiation and the symptoms began to show. They began to feel dizzy and nauseated. Some vomited and others began to taste something odd in their mouths, a combination of metal and chocolate. Those who have undergone chemotherapy and radiation treatment will recognize these symptoms. To my understanding, the metallic taste is your brain's way of warning you when your body is receiving damage that it cannot identify. As a result, your brain creates the metallic taste in your mouth to simulate the taste of blood, because blood is associated with injury. By 4 a.m., firefighting units from surrounding towns, including Chernobyl and Kiev, had arrived to support the Pripyat crew. By then, Pravik's men were so weak that they needed to be evacuated. But by dawn, due to the combined efforts of all these men, most of the graphite fires around the grounds had been extinguished. The main fire, however, continued to burn out of control, spewing radioactive fallout all over the area. It was to this scene that the Chernobyl plant director, Viktor Brukhanov, arrived. At 2 a.m. on April 26th, Viktor Brukhanov was awakened by a phone call. On the other end of the line, the caller said, quote, some sort of accident, something really bad has happened at the fourth unit, End quote. Upon hearing those words, Brukhanov was out of his house and on the way to the plant in minutes. When he arrived, the first thing he noticed was that building four no longer had a roof. After his initial shock had subsided, Victor went directly to the control room, where he found Alexander Akimov and Anatoly Dyadlov. He asked them what had happened, but neither man could explain. In fact, both of them were so out of it that they tried to assure Victor that the reactor was in working order. Realizing that both of them were in shock and couldn't provide any assistance, Victor approached a health worker and asked them to take a reading of the radioactivity in the atmosphere. Before we continue with the story, I have to explain something. While radioactive measurements around the world are done in becquerels or curies, although this has been phased out, and absorbed radiation is measured in rads, grays, or sieverts, the USSR at the time used a measurement of unit called a REM. REMs are still used today in many countries, though they are not standard units. All we need to understand, at least for this story, is that radioactive absorption is considered bad or unsafe once it crosses the 3.6 rem mark. In the case of Chernobyl, after Victor asked the health worker to take the measurement, the results were 250 rem. That reading was not entirely accurate because that was the maximum that particular instrument maxed out at which meant 
that they needed an instrument that was more accurate and had a bigger scale. Think about it this way. If you measured a substance whose temperature was 400 degrees Celsius with a 100 degree thermometer, then the reading would be 100 degrees because the thermometer has maxed out. Either way, that reading would still be very high. That was exactly what happened at the power plant. Even though the reading had maxed out at 250 rems, Victor understood what that meant. What it meant was that everyone in the vicinity, including him, had already absorbed a lethal dose of radiation. Upon receiving the results, Victor immediately began to make calls to party officials from Kiev to Moscow. Even though he couldn't explain what had happened and the reading wasn't entirely accurate, that 250 rem figure was enough to place the entire Soviet government on high alert. As dawn approached, Victor made his last call to the head of the party in Pripyat. Once he had received the call, Victor asked him to arrange evacuations for the entire city. Even as Victor called, he knew that there was a problem. An evacuation would alert the entire world that something big was happening, and at the time, Soviet law stated that all nuclear accidents were to remain state secrets. Let's also not forget that the Soviet government had already proclaimed that the odds of a nuclear accident occurring were 10,000 to 1. On the other hand, had he not made that call, he would have been condemning more than 50,000 people to a gruesome death. He couldn't make the decision to evacuate, but he hoped someone would. Unfortunately, politicians being what they are, the party official consulted Moscow and Victor's orders were to wait for scientists and party officials who would arrive at the plant by noon. As you hear that, please remember that Victor was making that call at dawn and yet he was told to wait until noon. At the same time, radioactive fallout was spreading and just a few kilometers away there was a city, a city whose inhabitants were just waking up. They were starting a new day and they had no idea that their lives were in danger. They had no idea because no one had told them. A few hours before noon, radioactive fallout had made it to the city and was now poisoning the inhabitants. A resident of Pripyat decided to sunbathe in the bright sunlight just before noon. After some time, he went back to his house in amazement because he had never turned so quickly before. He would soon end up in hospital and within weeks would endure a painful death. He wouldn't be the only one because by half past noon, many of Pripyat's residents were coughing and complaining of a metallic taste in their mouths. The reason why the fallout made it to Pripyat so fast wasn't just because of government bureaucracy. It was also because of the firefighters. Don't get me wrong, I'm not blaming them at all. In my book, in fact, in everybody's book, those guys are heroes. The reason why I say that they were one of the reasons radioactive fallout spread was because after putting out the smaller graphite fires around the power plant, they tried putting out the fire in the graphite core, a fire that was so hot it could turn sand into glass. 
As you can guess, their efforts were to no avail. Instead, they created radioactive steam. The radioactive steam rose into the air and became a radioactive cloud. I do not blame them for doing this because they didn't know any better. No one had told them that they were fighting nuclear fires. They were so clueless that, as I mentioned last week, they showed up with little to no protection. No one had told them because nuclear accidents were supposed to be state secrets. Because nuclear accidents were never going to happen, at least according to the Soviet Ministry of Energy. These guys knew that there was something odd about the fires. And yet, more than 30 crews of nearly 200 firefighters showed up to try and put it out. Even when most of them suffered severe burns and radiation exposure, they never left. That is the definition of a hero. After Viktor Brukhanov had made the relevant calls, he went to his office so he could try and work out what had happened. At the same time, he had the unenviable job of making sure that news of the accident did not spread out. Although Soviet troops made this job easier by circling the plant to keep out any observers. At least, that's how it was supposed to happen. As you can guess, the arrival of the soldiers signaled that something big was happening. After that, word spread quickly. I hope they didn't put poor Victor in the gulag for that. Valery Legasov was among one of the first people to be informed by the Soviet government about the accident. His specialty was RBMK reactors such as the ones in the Chernobyl power plant. Throughout the morning of April 26th, Valery received reports in his office. As details of the accident became less foggy, he grew increasingly worried. Finally, at noon, he decided that he was going to Ukraine. When he called his wife to give her the details, she asked why his trip was so sudden. He gave her a chillingly prescient reply. Quote, there has been a terrible accident at Chernobyl, the worst the world has ever known, end quote. Valery and his team of nuclear physicists did not reach Pripyat until the evening of April 26th. Once they arrived, they were briefed on what was known at that point. An explosion had destroyed the containment building of Reactor 4 and ignited the graphite core. The roof had been blown to one side leaving the reactor open to the atmosphere. After the briefing, the scientists flew over the site by helicopter, swooping as close as safety would allow to the broken reactor building. After hearing all that, Valery determined that fission in the reactor had ceased. The glow that could be seen was in fact burning graphite that was sending massive amounts of radioactivity into the air. When asked about leaving the fire in the core to burn out, he said that it wasn't an option. He explained that the graphite was burning at the rate of one ton per hour. The core contained 2,500 tons of graphite and that would take more than three months to completely burn out. Additionally, if the temperature of the graphite increased, there was a danger that the uranium itself would melt. This would result in a meltdown. If that happened, there was a chance that this melted uranium 
would reach the water table, thus poisoning millions of square kilometers. As for the firefighters pouring water onto the core itself, there was a bigger problem than just increased amounts of radioactive fallout. At about 2,500 degrees Celsius, water would separate into its components, hydrogen and oxygen. Both are extremely volatile. If the firefighters poured water on the core while it was at this temperature, they would be creating a bomb. The astonished scientists asked what they should do about the fire, and Valery Legasov told them that the only way to stop the fire was to smother it in a mixture of sand and boron. Sand for the fire and boron for neutron absorption. As for how much sand and boron? 4,000 tons. The shocked group argued that such a task was impossible because the Soviet government had hidden the dangers of a nuclear accident for years. Most of these people could not comprehend exactly how dangerous the situation was. First, there was a cloud rising from the reactor's remains and drifting north over Pripyat. That cloud carried radiation that was 10 times above levels considered safe. Second, the debris and dust that came from the explosion was made up of graphite, heavy metals such as lead, concrete, and even microscopic bits of uranium. As long as the fire continued to burn, more and more dust would be introduced into the atmosphere. This dust would then be spread by the wind, possibly killing or wounding thousands, if not tens of thousands. After a brief discussion, Valery and his colleagues ordered all reactors at the plant to be shut down to avoid any more accidents. They also started assembling a massive fleet of helicopters and workers, whose job was to smother the fire. At this point, Valery Legasov no longer cared about secrecy. He knew that all the activity at the plant would ignite speculation, but he had no choice. He had to make some tough choices, and he had to make them in the face of an increasingly suspicious population. A population that was worried, and rightly so, about the fact that the government was lying to them. The use of helicopters posed a new problem. A helicopter could only carry 100 tons of sand and boron at a time. This would require at least 40 trips to deliver all 4,000 tons. And that would only be if no mistakes were made, which was unlikely. The problem was, the helicopters would need to have technicians and laborers on board, and 40 trips was far too many, because all these people would be exposed to lethal amounts of radiation. In Pripyat, it had been almost 24 hours since the accident, and no one had been evacuated. This inaction increased the residents' suspicions even more, and by early morning the next day, thousands had left the city. Many of those who had remained, either because they could not afford to leave or because they had nowhere to go, were showing signs of radiation sickness. These people still held out hope that help was coming, and it would, just not before most of them had been exposed to excessively dangerous amounts of radiation. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked my narration, please leave us a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. Also, 
Please remember to subscribe to the show so you don't miss the next part of this terrible but enthralling story. For those who support the show, thank you so much. If it wasn't for you guys, this show would have ceased to exist some time ago. Keep on sharing the show and if you can, show some love on patreon.com slash strife. I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but as I have said before, I've literally not made a single penny of this show since I began. I use my own resources, but unfortunately, the dirty dishes are beginning to pile up. So please, if you can, do what you can. Until next time, goodbye.